0: This podcast brought to you by Hope 103.2. The Hope Book Club with Katrina Rowe and Natasha Moore. Because life's just better with a book.
1: Welcome to The Hope Book Club with Katrina Rowe and Natasha Moore. In episode 18 of The Hope Book Club, we have picked out some cracking nonfiction, exploring some of life's big questions. Natasha's been enjoying factfulness, 10 reasons we're wrong about the world and why things are better than you think. This book by the Swedish statistician Hans Rosling comes highly recommended by none other than Bill Gates. She's also been immersed in Francis Buffett's spiritual essay, Unapologetic. Why despite everything, Christianity can still make surprising emotional sense. And I've been reading Lee Sales' book, Any Ordinary Day, exploring the way that traumatic life events and the media's coverage of them can shape our perception of the world. It also explores how people bounce back after a major blindside. We'll discuss the books we want to buy our loved ones for Christmas. Hopefully our family and friends aren't listening too closely. And if you'd like to join in the conversation or share your thoughts about one of the books we discuss, we'd love to hear from you. Email bookclub at hopemedia.com.au. So first up is Hans Rosling's Factfulness. This is a book that Bill Gates has endorsed with his highest recommendation. Factfulness 10 Reasons We're Wrong About the World and Why Things Are Better Than You Think is a book that highlights why things just aren't as bad as they seem. It's written by Swedish statistician Hans Rosling with his son Ola Rosling and his daughter-in-law Anna Rosling Ronland. Sadly, Hans Rosling actually passed away before the book was released. Natasha Moore has actually been raving about this one. G'day, (laughs) Natasha. (laughs) Hi, Katrina. Who was Hands,
2: Rosling, and what was he trying to say with this book? Ah. Oh. He seems like such a wonderful guy. Like he um, he was a doctor. Uh, he worked in Mozambique and India, among other places. He discovered some paralytic disease that no one had found before. He um, founded Doctors Without Borders in Sweden. He worked with the UN and the World Health Organization for years. He, you know, in 2014, like dropped everything to go to Liberia to help with the Ebola epidemic. Um, like he's kind of this public health guy. And he's also for years um, – Um, Been all about data. So he's like, actually, it's really important that we understand what the facts are on the ground in all these areas. And people actually don't know a lot of the things that um, he thinks we should. Um, And so he kind of, he founded this um, organization called the Gap Gapminder Foundation, which helps to kind of put data together for people so that it's accessible and it's useful for them. So the gap is like the gap between reality and perception, is it? Yeah. You know, what
1: we think and what is the
2: fact. Yeah. Okay. And, you know, he's done TED Talks on this that have been viewed like 35 million times or more. and, um, And so he's kind of at the same time this like hard data, we have to care about the facts person. But he's not kind of detached from uh, the -the on-the-ground reality, people's real stories. Like he's a, you know. Caring about people. Yeah. Yeah, The facts are more like to tell you about what people need. he's been working on this stuff for decades. Like he has the credibility to be like, I care about these, you know, I care about infant mortality rates. I care about people who are sick and, mm. and poor in, you know, low income, income countries and so on. So what did you learn from reading the book? Oh my goodness, I learned so much. Yeah. I think one of the main things that I learned is that I'm way more Western centric than I think I am. Like I know I am anyway, but it really convicted me of, you know, here's a way I see the world. So, you know, he kind of starts off the book being like, I've gone around for decades and, you know, talking to even people like um, top bankers and, um, you know, aid organisations and politicians and the UN and so on. And everywhere he goes, he did this quiz um, where he'd get people to answer questions like, you know, what percentage of people... Uh, around the world receive some kind of vaccination. Um, What percent – you know, has extreme poverty over the last two decades? Has it almost doubled, remained about the same? Has it almost halved? Uh, You know, what percentage of girls go to school? All this kind of stuff. Hmm. And people would consistently go much lower – then the, they'd go much more negative on the answers than was the case. That actually extreme poverty has almost halved in the last 20 years. That actually far fewer people um, die from natural disasters now than did 100 years ago. Um, that almost everybody around the world goes to school. Almost everybody around the world has some vaccination or children now um and he kind of goes actually even the people who are involved in a lot of this work don't realize how much progress we've made um and you know he gives this really stunning example of like he shows kind of a graph where we go okay you still think that there are developed countries and there are developing countries and that you know here's what the developed developed countries look like they have low infant mortality they have you know low birth rate um high standard of living here's what the developing countries look like they have people have lots of babies and lots of them die Mm. and he's like that's an accurate picture of the world in 1965 (laughs) i was wondering about that now you know he shows the graph and it's like actually people have moved way more up to the development Very few people are having lots of children anymore. Um, The population is supposed to level out by the end of the century, actually. Is that right? Yeah, that infant mortality has, like, gone dramatically down for many years and that, you know, there is still a problem of extreme poverty, but actually it's going down and down and down. The things that we've been doing um, have been working well that's wonderful isn't it great <laughs> who knew right I didn't know so, so you know he goes through all these different statistics and all these and, and then what he really wants to do is talk about the reasons why because he's like people get it wrong they don't just kind of get it randomly a bit wrong he's like people get it so dramatically wrong that if you went to the zoo and you went to the chimp enclosure and you threw bananas with a b and c mm. to each chimp they would have, they would get a better success rate of just randomly picking the A, B and C bananas. That's
1: a, that <laughs> sounds like one of those cliches that you would think would be misinformed, doesn't it, right? Like that actually, if you just got
2: monkeys on typewriters, yeah. they'd eventually yeah. write, you know, Pride and Prejudice or yeah. something. People do worse than like arbitrary guessing in yeah. these things because it's not just that we don't know and we're guessing, it's that we have a different view of the world that, doesn't fit those facts and so we'll always get those wrong. Oh, our paradigms wrong in the first place. Yeah, and so he talks about kind of the different things that get in the way, the different instincts we have that get in the way of us understanding and seeing the world this way. Um, so things like the negativity instinct, um, which is partly a media thing that we we you know only ever hear bad news mm. on the news because that's what news is for. That's what you news don't, is, yeah. Um, and a lot of bad things that happen are big and dramatic and sudden and a lot of good things that happen are gradual and, you know, not that newsworthy. And so you hear about the bad things, but you don't hear about the good things. And so he goes through these different kind of barriers we have and kind of gives us practical tips for overcoming them
1: a lot of that's about pictures too like if you've got pictures of a plane falling out of a sky or a bushfire you know or a flood that makes the news how do you have pictures to show healthy happy people who've all been vaccinated and no longer getting smallpox
2: you know there's a whole um genre of books at the moment that are like the optimists that are like why are we all so pessimistic and so negative about the state of society and the future um when actually everything's getting better and better in the world so much better than it used to be and a lot of those um, books or those writers come across as a bit callous, a bit like, "Oh yeah, yeah, I know you've got problems, but everything's so much better than it used to be. So stop, quit whinging." And right, and he's not like that at all. He's like, actually, things can be bad and better. When I'm saying, hey, look how much everything's improved, I'm not saying that there is still work to be done. Don't worry, everything's fine, chill. That actually, there are all these things that could go wrong in the future, and there are all these things that are still really bad. But how about we look at what's worked? And we continue to do those things. Because if you get that wrong, then you're going to kind of give up in despair or you're going to be like, okay, well, we have to do something else drastic because we don't realise that current things are actually helping.
1: Yeah, awesome. Is is there any chance that Rosalind's view is overly rosy? Like some people have criticised him for overlooking some of the major challenges the world is facing?
2: Well, that wasn't my impression from the Mm. book at all. So I think – One of the lovely things about this book is that he comes across as so sweet and humble, actually. He tells all these lovely anecdotes about his own life and his own kind of things he's got wrong and um, he has a lot of experience, you know, like really on-the-ground relevant experience of all of this stuff and he's not at all – he actually says – I get upset when people call me an optimist because I'm not an optimist. Um, he calls himself a possibilist. Okay. Um, but yeah. he's all about what's possible in the future. But he's like, here are, you know, he talks about here are five things that I'm really worried about. Um, he lists, you know, the possibility of a global pandemic, um, of world war, uh, of uh, financial collapse, Uh, climate change and extreme poverty and he's like the first three have all happened before the last two are happening now so Mm. he's like all these things worry me a lot i think Mm. about them i care about them you know i do stuff about them um so it's not that he's like ah everything will be fine guys, at all um it's that he's like let's make sure we've got our facts right
1: Yeah. Because
2: cool. um, where do, where are we starting from, if yeah. not from that?
1: And so it would be accessible for people who don't have a head for stats? I don't have a head for stats.
2: Well, <laughs> um, it's really accessible. It's such an easy and pleasant read. And I think really, I mean, challenging to your view of the world, like it's a bit of a mind shift to go, oh, I really, this is not how I think about the world I live in. Um, but... Yeah, he really guides you through it, really gives you lots of stories and pictures and <laughs> great, um, yeah, like tips and bullet points and stuff. It is a a really good, easy, important read. Okay.
1: That is Natasha Moore from the Centre for Public Christianity and we've been talking about Factfulness by Hans Rosling. If you want to share your thoughts about it, email us, bookclub at hopemedia.com.au. Let's hear from Unapologetic by Francis Spufford.
0: So of all things, Christianity isn't supposed to be about gathering up all the good people, shiny, happy, squeaky clean, and excluding all the bad people, frightening, alien, repulsive, for the very simple reason that there aren't any good people. Nothing can be securely designated as such. It can't be about circling the wagons of virtue out in the suburbs and keeping the unruly inner city at bay. This, I realise, goes flat contrary to the present predominant image of it as something existing in prissy, fastidious little enclaves, far from life's messier zones, and inclined to get all judgmental about them. Again, of course, there are Christians like that. The religion can certainly slip into being a club or a cosy affinity group or a wall against the world. But it isn't supposed to be. What it's supposed to be is a league of the guilty. Not all guilty of the same things or in the same way or to the same degree, but enough for us to recognise each other.
1: That's Unapologetic by Francis Bufford. Why, despite everything, Christianity can still make surprising emotional sense. He has written a book about why he chooses faith and what it means to him spiritually, intellectually. And emotionally. What appealed to you about this Natasha, other than his um sensational name, Francis Puffett,
2: who <laughs> sounds like a cartoon He character. does have a great name. But he also has a great personality. Like I've kind of heard interviews with him. Um he's extremely British and very fun and very kind of inventive. He actually, um, I don't think he was always a Christian. Um, I think he's quite a late convert and he um, is a novelist and he teaches literature at the University of London um, and he just has this really kind of fun, irreverent, you know, creative way of putting things. Is so, he married?
1: He sounds like your perfect I man. think he's married to a vicar. Oh, right. <laughs>
2: Damn. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So I've actually been meaning to read this book for years and recently on holidays I finally got there. I brought it from a friend and was like, oh, this was everything that I hoped and more.
1: Oh, brilliant. So is this a bit of a response to the fundamentalism of the new atheists like the Christopher Hitchens and the Richard Dawkins?
2: Uh, They do come up um, and it's a response in one sense and in another sense it's really not. So – you know, this is, um, it was written back in 2012, I think. Um, and you know, it is kind of in the wake of the whole, oh, atheism is back on the agenda and, you know, does religion poison everything. And, um, you know, people who believe in God are ridiculous and this kind of, you know, polemical, these arguments about religion in the public square. And this book, instead of being like, okay, I'm going to hit back and tell you why faith is so reasonable and rational. Instead, he kind of goes, no, 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 this, this, conversation is just everyone's going past each other I'm not interested in any of these arguments he's like let me tell you a little bit how faith feels from the inside and why you know it's not ridiculous not in the sense of here are some you know philosophical arguments for the existence of God but in the sense of there are real emotional experiences and emotional needs that people have that Christianity speaks very deeply to and this is a very kind of sophisticated thing that makes sense of the real world in all its mess. And let's approach that not from kind of a combative or like a propaganda perspective, but from a, okay, well, we're all humans together, you know, facing up to reality. Um, What does religion have to say to that? And why, you know, he talks about kind of why he is a Christian and can see how that looks ridiculous to people in some ways, but here's all the ways that it makes sense from the inside. Does he share anything of what his own religious experience has been like? Um, He does in a really specific sense. So he kind of – I think the book that it's most like in some ways is C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, um, which, you know, back in the day was kind of radio broadcasts where he was speaking to kind of the British public, lots of whom were, you know, pretty disillusioned or not that interested in Christianity. And he was like, okay, let's go back to first principles and um, let's talk about, you know, the moral law. Why do we think that things are fair or just or not? You know, he kind of goes through a bunch of things that's like, okay, here's some common ground we all have. We all have this experience. Um, And he takes that journey through from there to surprisingly orthodox Christian belief. And Francis Buffett kind of does the same thing. He goes, like he starts with what he (laughs) – Won't call sin. He's like, it's sin, but we think of sin as like an ice cream brand. So he calls it the human propensity to muck things up. I'm sanitizing. You're, you're censoring that. Okay, sure. <laughs> and so he kind of goes, okay, well, this is what it's like to be, you know, humans who just, we screw everything up, all our, you know, promises and relationships and, um, you know, we're wretched in all these ways and what do you do with that? Um, and, hey, actually, Christianity makes sense of that. And so he talks about his own spiritual experience of sucking and his own spiritual experience of – God's presence but in a very kind of not simplistic or straightforward way. Like he really goes, okay, he describes one particular experience of prayer for himself and he digs really deep and kind of drills down and goes, okay, what's really happening there? And, you know, it's very kind of vulnerable um, but also just his writing is so beautiful and so kind of exuberant that you just want to kind of – you want him to describe everything about everything. <laughs> okay. It's just so much fun to read. <laughs> so he's, he's not trying to convert people. He's certainly
1: not speaking or writing to Christians or religious people only. Um, so what do you think he is trying to do with this book?
2: I think he's trying to say we can have a better conversation than we usually do, both about being human – and about being religious or not being religious, that these are not kind of entrenched positions where we, you know, should kind of like lob grenades at each other and try to score points and that kind of thing, but that actually we're talking about real people's experiences, emotions, um, desires, beliefs, um, and we're all kind of in this together trying to figure this out. So, you know, he's a bit like, well, let me tell you about – Um, How I see it and over real gritty experience over years, Mm. what I think is actually going on here in terms of reality and in terms of the human heart. And he has this like wonderful chapter on Jesus um, where he kind of retells the story of Jesus um, in a way that... Is like you know faithful and recognizable, but is also it kind of defamiliarizes and makes it strange and makes you go, yeah, like this guy is you know so compelling and so confronting and you know disturbing, but also mm-hmm. um, you know challenging and inviting. And so I think just anyone who would be interested in hearing about Christianity or even the belief in something more. In terms that are not kind of superficial, uh, if you want to hear that in terms that are refreshing and that make you go, okay, let me let me figure out what I really think about this, um, he's a really good way in, I think. Nice. So I guess one way that it's different from other books, Exploring Faith,
1: it sounds like it's not confrontational. Not at all. Yeah.
2: Which is not to say that he's not, like there are times where he's quite punchy. Um, he has this, he has some occasional snide footnotes, which are a lot of fun. And he has one where he, he's kind of like, okay, let's address once and for all the idea that the Church of England is this like hugely wealthy organization. And he goes through and just demolishes that. And he's like, you know, everyone looks at the Wealth, like the assets, the churches, but they don't own them and they have to spend all this money maintaining them and everyone's penny-pinching all over the place. And here's how much a vicar earns, which is a lot less than, you know, Richard Dawkins on his. Yeah. (laughs) So he's not kind of like, oh, gently, gently. Um, But he's just – he really embraces human frailty and human folly and identifies with it. And so I don't think anyone would feel threatened – I think everyone would feel invited by this book. Well, that's cool. So who do you think would enjoy it? Um, I hope everyone. (laughs) Right. I think especially people who like British stuff because he just <laughs> yeah. is very British. And actually the version I read um, had a a note at the beginning for American audiences which explained a number of things including the fact that he swears quite a lot in the book and that people might find that, particularly Americans from a religious um, background, might find that distressing that that's not a thing that Christians do in person or in writing but he kind of explains very charmingly and Britishly why he does that okay um, so yeah I think anybody who enjoys um, Englishness but also who just likes thinking about life from a perspective that is a bit more you know trying to grapple with like the real substance of things mm. um, and in a way that like it's not it's not a difficult. Read and he's very entertaining. He's constantly entertaining.
1: Well, he said he did absolutely no research for the book.
2: <laughs> yeah, apparently he just kind of sat down in a Cambridge. It's cafe like a and big
1: mind fart.
2: <laughs> well, and he doesn't need to do research on it because he's, it's a very personal book in some ways. It's not in that he's telling all these like stories, anecdotes about his life. He does that a little bit, but more because it's an investigation inwards of him being like, well, I'm a Christian, um, and I'm not this caricature that you know, some atheists think I am. Mm. Let me tell you about what it's like from the inside.
1: Yeah. Cool. So, look, that actually sounds like a good book that I would be happy to give for Christmas. Mm -hmm. And it made Mm -hmm. me think, have you got a little list in your
2: head of the books that you want to pick up for Christmas this year? I tend to... Very heavily tailor my books to my people. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, But there are some books where you're like, actually, I've come across this book and it's so great that I just need to find somebody to give it to. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's right, yeah. So one that I'm looking at for this Christmas is um, a book called Strange Planet. Have you seen the cartoons? No. Nah. There's this guy called Nathan Pyle who um, – uh, he has an Instagram account called Strange Planet and it's these cartoons of like these aliens – but they're kind of living, you know, human lives on earth. But you realize from the way that they talk about things that are really normal for us humans, but he kind of changes the language and stuff, um that we're actually really absurd as a species. Right. So, you know, things like like really normal stuff like having people round for dinner, you know, they kind of they're like oh, we need to put all these irregular shaped objects into regular shaped objects and people show up at the door and they're like, oh, your house is so lovely. And they're like, oh, thanks, we own things, but we have hidden them, which is what you do when people come around and and like wanting to tan but calling it like star damage, which it is. It's, you know, damage from our star. Um, And so it's very funny. And um, so he kind of started putting these cartoons on Instagram in like February this year and has like millions of followers and is bringing out a book for Christmas. And I think they're just hilarious. And so I have to figure out who to give this book of cartoons to.
1: Awesome. Oh, I think I'd like to pick up Factfulness, actually. That sounds good. I also thought of um, Meredith Lake's The Bible in Australia for my dad. Mm -hmm. He loves reading books about history, often about wars and things like that but i think he'd really appreciate that book and um the one that i'm about to talk about actually i think would also be a great christmas gift because i know a lot of people who've had really turbulent years and um this book any ordinary day by lee sales i feel Um, like everyone i know has been reading this look it's i actually really liked it Mm -hmm. um Not everyone I know has loved it, but I really did. I guess it just depends if you're interested in the kinds of questions that the book is asking. Which are? So Sales basically went through her own traumatic experience. She had a really horrific Birth where she and her baby both could have died. Her uterus ruptured. It was a major, wow. major medical crisis. And it started to weigh on her mind about the fragility of life. Of course, in her work as a journalist, she's been exposed to massive disasters, you know, that she's had to report on. And some of the people that the media has highlighted have really stayed in her mind over the years. And so we meet these. I guess you'd say victims, although she doesn't use that word, mm. um, of either terrible crimes, natural disasters, terrorist attacks, that kind of thing. Yeah. And what Lee Sales is really interested in in exploring is how you deal with it when a random event usually completely defines your life, how you bounce back from that how you cope with the overwhelming media attention, how your attitude to life changes, what resilience really looks like in some of these people. Yeah, I was going to say,
2: so is this a book about resilience?
1: It's not as simple as that, Mm -hmm. um, because as a journalist, she also really explores the ethics of journalism and how the media treats people at times of catastrophe and disaster. Problem? Yeah, she's studied. uh, Well, she draws on study of that as well as to how um, media interactions help or hinder survivors after these kinds of events. Um, There's a lot of stuff about faith in it, Natasha. Like a lot of the people that feature in the book have got a strong Christian faith, people like Louisa Hope who survived the Lint Cafe siege, um, Michael Spence from Sydney University who endured very sudden death of his wife and the mother of his four children, um, James Scott, the Mountaineer who was stranded in the Himalayas for days on end, um, you know, people like that and the the role that their faith has played in their recovery and in their view of life mm. and um, she explores You know, a lot of interesting questions. I think if you're not someone who wants to think more deeply about the nature of suffering and how we respond (laughs) to it, you're not going to like this book, you know.
2: But then we're so scared of, like, disaster and, you know, our lives falling apart and stuff that it almost – seems like would anyone not want to kind of read about other people coping with this even as like a coping strategy for that fear?
1: Well it's really funny because when I mentioned to my husband he's like I don't want to read about that I see all this <laughs> stuff in my work all the time he's a journalist as well but I was like you know it's really helped me because I've had a, a year where I've seen people's lives getting hammered you know with stuff this year and and you know it's not unexpected these things actually happen it's part of the human condition we shouldn't be so surprised mm. but you if you can move from beyond the question of why me and sort of start to look at, I guess, the state of being human. And one of the best things to get out of the book is how we can respond to those who are suffering. For example, one of the stories in it is about Walter Mycack who lost his whole family in the Port Arthur massacre and he shared stories of how, you know, friends would cross the road to get away from him because they couldn't face seeing his sadness. You know, there's a friend, one friend he said was running off down the street and... He thought, if I, don't, if I don't chase him down, this guy's never going to speak to me again. We're gonna, <laughs> I'm going to lose that friendship. So he chased him down, grabbed him and went, hey, turned him around. And the guy had tears streaming down oh. his face. He just couldn't face the sadness, didn't know what to say. Wow. It's so confronting. Um, but I think what you do learn from this book is what people do and don't need. Um, and one of the really interesting characters in it is a Jesuit priest Um, who ministers to a woman who's lost her husband in a really violent crime. And there's a lot you can learn from him about what it means to be with someone in their time of suffering.
2: Wow. So who are you going to buy it for? I'm
1: going to buy it for some of the people I know who've had a really rough year. Good call. Yeah. Um, Well, that wraps up episode 18 our non-fiction edition of the hope book club in this episode we have reviewed backfulness by hans rosling with ola rosling and anna rosling ronland unapologetic by francis buffard and any ordinary day by lee sales thanks for listening to the hope book club because life's just better with a book